0: Xander Berkeley. I can't believe I'm actually talking to you. What an honor.
1: Brian Garner, it's not that big a deal, really. I I've I've been talking to myself my entire life. <laughs> and the
0: and the power of technology, you're all the way in lovely Maine, and I'm in the UK. What's it like in Maine today?
1: Well, I'm closer to the UK than I I, I have been for the last 40 years. So I feel like it's just a hop, skip, and a jump away now.
0: And 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 why? And why Maine? Why of all places? Because obviously you've lived in in Los Angeles, and now you've gone to the n- most northeastern state, I think it is.
1: Uh, I think you can put that together for yourself, can't you? Trying to get away <laughs> from the bloody place. <laughs> Trying to resist temptation. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of like I don't know, same old. Um, my wife and I both uh, had been doing a lot of TV and yeah. you know, TV's, TV's gotten a lot better in some ways, but in a lot of other ways, uh, you know, unless you get lucky with some really spectacular show, so much of it is so much the same Yeah, as this procedural crap. And and it, they offer you, you know, a lot of dough to do stuff that's just not that interesting. And a lot of times you're taken away from your family yeah. and sent off on location. You know, time was, it was a, an industry town and you you could work close to home, and and uh, and then gradually it, it became this uh, diaspora where they, they shot everywhere but at home it seemed, and um, and you'd end up you know spending so much time away. And we have young kids, and uh, I, I you know having had children later in life feel like I want to be there while they need and want me. And uh, well I can be there for them. And so it just became a matter of priorities, wanting to get them out of LA before they turned into teenagers, their two girls. Yeah,
0: you've got two girls just just like me. So I'm yeah. I'm gonna be worried. Mine are only six and two, so they're at good ages.
1: My condolences, mate.
0: It's it's a struggle. <laughs> but you wouldn't trade it for the world, would you? <laughs> cool, blimey. Um so Xander, um, so you you was born in Brooklyn. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong I've done my research um, then you moved to New Jersey uh, with your mum and dad um, good old Peter and Margaret um, oh
1: lovely you know their names that's yeah. so sweet
0: and obviously Peter was a painter and your mum was a teacher um, so do you think you got your artistic um, talents from your parents do you think they influenced you um, at a very young age to become the actor that you are now
1: well, absolutely. Um, they, uh, they, they, they poisoned me with creativity, <laughs> and uh, there was no escaping it. It was a curse. Uh, I couldn't escape. And I also grew up on a um... – they were very interesting people. They, they, um, they had both sort of left society in a way during the um, – in the wake of, uh, of the war, World War II. They They felt the existential – sort of um, angst and uh, went on a search and um, th- that's where they met. Uh, they, they met on a, without getting into too great a detail about their mystic roots. Um, th- there was an expat Brit community in the States of people that had come over during the war Yeah, um, that were seekers uh, and they had found the ideas of a mystic um, that they were all drawn to. And he was, uh, alive and and uh giving lectures in new york and they'd started this farm out in new jersey um for people to come and stay and work as a self-sufficient sort of community and there were people gradually beyond those that had come over from the uk that had gradually come over the years from all over the world and um very eclectic group um and and many magical brits like Peter Brook and Pamela Travers and people like that were there um, at one time or another. And, and it was just an eccentric, uh, deeply intelligent, um, lovely group of people that um, were studying how to be, become better human beings and, uh, and in unconventional uh, sort of way, just trying to work uh, what has become, what would turn out to become very popular in a couple of decades later with a sort of communal, uh, approach to farming and gardening, and um, that wasn't really their their purpose. Uh, they were, but they were sort of, I think, looking to get away from the war, as I say. And my parents came, and they were younger than the rest that were out there, and they mm. came um, from lectures in New York, and they were brought out, and and they just fell so in love with this environment, which was a basically it was a, a chateau and grounds, a farm built in. In the 1700s, in New Jersey, in the French chateau tradition of the 12th century, so it was really like mm-hmm. out out of time Sounds and amazing. place. And you know, there was a my parents after the death of these these teachers in the in the late 40s, they went back on their own to take what they had gleaned um, and start a life. They they met there and they got married and then went moved back to Brooklyn. My father was working as an illustrator. And, uh, my mother's a bit older than my father and the, she always said, and she was a Texan and, uh, she was like, well, honey, we were out of our minds. We didn't have two sticks to rub together. We had no business. <laughs> you just had to come into this world and like, yeah, put it on me. Oh, okay. Um, and, but she sewed as well as taught and, uh, she made costumes. And since we didn't have a lot of dough because they had sort of exited society in the, in those key years, um, that when they uh my father got into the publishing and through illustration, and then art direction, and then uh you know from book design to art direction, uh, he got offered a job out there near where they had met in New Jersey yeah. in this eucolic pastoral environment, and there was a cottage on that farm at, that was again two hundred and fifty years old, beautiful uh sort of sanctuary um it was near enough to where he was going to work in Morristown um that they thought yeah let's do it and they they we we grew up there sort of those key years and then stayed in that town after that and and um so I had this sort of feeling of I sort of hide my antenna because we weren't like other kids because we weren't exposed to the same sort of impressions with these people from all over the world and everybody else was growing up in a development where they were very much like one another and and uh we had a different vocabulary different manner of just just because this we were the only kids on this farm. So we were around a lot of grown ups and 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 I was very drawn to all these different accents. And there were lords and ladies and there were people that were Cockney. There were people from Ireland and Scotland, as well as France and Mexico and Peru and all over the place.
0: Yeah, because I read uh, that you're from Scottish and English descent. Is that correct? Or
1: That is, yeah. Yes. Primarily Scottish.
0: Ah, Scott. I can't do a Scottish accent, by the way. I'm use, useless at accents. Um, oh, that, no, that sounds fantastic. I mean, it's, it's great when you just mentioned about obviously taking the kids from L.A. back to, well, go back to Maine. It's, 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 it's a great choice because I think that L.A., would you agree, it's a very fickle sort of place. It's very, um, you know, for kids it can, it can be quite poisonous um, as they grow up. You know, to become into their own people. You know, you know, become their own selves.
1: Yeah, it's you just want a, a different set of impression. We don't have to worry about them. You don't have to worry about them being, you know, whatever. It's just, it's so beautiful here where we are in Maine, and, and you yeah. can drive yeah. like all day long and, and not see anything that isn't beautiful. And uh, you know, I know from time that I spent over there in the UK that I I, I had many. I felt very at home when I when I was over there. So it's yeah. it's also this this harkens back to our I think our, our I didn't particularly date within my gene pool, but I ended up mating within it. And um, <laughs> my wife and I are both fair and Celtic, and we were sort of cowering from the blistering sunlight. We found ourselves just not only uh, feeling as though it was getting hotter and hotter all the time, and we were up in the hills. And more and more tourists were coming up in the hills near the Hollywood sign, and uh, it it felt like the the temperatures were rising. The the tourists were were rising, and traffic was on the rise. And we felt like the place was about to just burst into flame. And literally, it did shortly after we left. And um, there's just it was. I will always have a deep, fond affection. Los Angeles and everything that it brought me and uh, incredible memories that I have, but a lot, as much as anything for where it sent me around the world, because I chose a lot of the films that I did on the basis of where I could go and, and uh, learn about other cultures and, and be in different places.
0: Yeah. So you've been in quite quite a few movies. Um, your list is absolutely uh, you know longer than my arm. Um, so to name a few, obviously... Apollo 13, you played Henry Hertz. Air Force One, The Walking Dead, which I presume that everyone's going to recognise you recently the most for, um, and my personal favourite, George Mason in 24. Absolutely amazing, amazing show. How did you get that role on 24? What was the audition process like? Well, I, I don't want to sound
1: smug, but I didn't audition for it did as I really? did for The Walking Dead either. Um no, I, uh, I, you know, it wasn't a series regular in the beginning. It was just a, a part in the pilot, and it was a coup for them to get me because I was a big film actor. Not big film actor, but I'd been doing a lot of big movies pretty yeah. steadily for a long time, and, and I, I, I was a little snotty and didn't really do that much TV, and, and there was the, uh, the off chance that I could be lured into doing a, a more recurring, regular thing if the show got picked up. Um, especially because they cast my future wife Sarah Clark,
0: yes, in the
1: show, and uh, and that that proved to be a big lure um, for getting me to do more than just a, a recurring role. And I did the, the series regularly the following year, partly again because I was still avoiding uh, getting tied to anything. I hadn't I hadn't gotten married before then, and and I was getting on and. I hadn't committed to a TV series before then. Um, But they, they gave me this, this irresistible pitch where they said, we've got it. What if, because originally in the pilot, I I was just sort of a, just that guy. And he, you know, they were going to bump him off shortly thereafter, but they just happened to like what I did, what I sort of added, I improvised a little bit and brought a little bit more gravitas and a little bit more ironic wit than, than was in the script. Definitely. And that was just exactly the seasoning that their stew uh, required. And so they ended up writing for that and bringing that back in. And and then it was sort of like they were making him almost like a, a just a prick for the sake of being a prick for agitation and, and uh, you know, I, I guess for their own entertainment. There's a grist for the mill or a foil for for Jack. And, and I sort of said, yeah, I don't know if I'm really you know, want to do another season of that. But they say, well, here's our pitch. <laughs> you inhale airborne plutonium in season one, in, in episode one or two, and you have 24 hours to live. And that's an episode, that's a whole season. And so uh, we will then uh, allow you to drop the guise of, of previous behavior and redeem yourself and get a hold of your son, uh, who we didn't know you had, and, and work out, Dynamics in the office, and and you know, sort of make up for a life somewhat misspent, and uh, and then who knows? We'll see. Uh, and then it, it just coincided. They needed to get rid of that damn bomb. It was, it was starting to weigh weigh them down in the in the show, and and so it was two birds, one stone, and then they allowed me to redeem myself fully by saving all of Los Angeles.
0: You certainly did, and yeah. what an epic exit that is for anyone that I've seen in any show. Um, how, how, how soon did you find out that you were going to be saving, you know, Vegas and, and going into the Mojave desert, um, to save, um, Kiefer Sutherland's character? Was, well, was I right at the front, uh, reading the no, script? No, it was,
1: they, you know, they were figuring it all out as they went along. That was what was sort of exciting about the show. My wife didn't know she was going to be the mole until like an episode or two before. Really? And... And I, I only knew from the very beginning that I was going to be inhaling airborne plutonium. So I did massive research on the effects of radiation poisoning and how it affects you psychologically and more than anything, apparently, physically. And um, and so, and because I, I don't know if you know, but that's one of the, the anecdotal tales I was sort of leading to about my, my mother sewing and my being exposed to all these different accents and and stuff as a kid, uh, I just, and being on a farm, I got to just go off and play make believe and dress up. And, uh, a lot of my characters were initially British characters like Dr. Doolittle and Robin Hood. And I just had these costumes. And I'd go out and, and, uh, become that character for the entire day that I was out there playing. And, and um, my father being an artist supplied me with, um, a novelty uh, makeup kit when i was pretty young because he saw that i was using burnt cork and ketchup and different things to to create wounds yeah at a certain point and uh i'd, I'd rope friends into doing staging fights out by the road to do like with breakaway sticks and stuff to 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 freak people out when they were driving by <laughs> um <laughs> and then i'd lie there with a gash and a, a, a slash and a wound and having just been knocked out by the breakaway stick and and um, and they'd peel over to a stop and say are you okay and I'd run off cackling going yeah I'm fine how are you oh, no. um,
0: imagine if you actually yeah. did injure yourself and they're like oh no that's uh, Xander or Alexander should I say when you was younger oh he's just messing about <laughs>
1: yeah yeah that was just you know I never hurt anybody but I hurt my I, I appeared to hurt myself and then I was a bit of a prankster on that level and uh, it and I developed the skills very early on of, of uh, stagecraft I became a, a stage actor pretty young and a lot of people didn't have those skills so I developed them and I would be the makeup artist for whatever theater company I was in and uh, do my own makeup as a way to sort of get into character and do other people's makeup when needed. Um, and I was hired to do that when I got to New York, um, pretty good at it. And and uh, so with different companies, I've been allowed to do my own uh, special effects makeup and which I gradually learned when I started getting into film. Yeah. And
0: because you, you, you did your own special effects makeup on 24, didn't you? For the yeah. radiation. Poisoning. yeah
1: so i i had the whole thing kind of mapped out like how it was going to progress uh because you know they told me originally you know that i'd have 24 hours to live and that was going to you know make up a whole season and so i was just trying to time it out like at what point might i be losing an ear uh would i be you know at, at what point would skin actually be how gross do you, do you want this and how far are we going to go and and i need to let the, the blistering and buckling of skin start to reveal itself i wanted to wait until later in the season because i didn't want it to be gross or distracting yeah but we're starting to reveal things along the way and um so i just checked in at one point howard gordon was a, a newer producer on the show still and uh he's i believe he's joel's cousin uh, okay. and joel um Cernow is the show runner yeah. and chief writer and uh but i went to howard and we we're all good friends and, and uh he said, so Howard, do we know exactly like yet uh to have a sense of when I'm gonna <laughs> and uh he went, uh that that's a Joel question. And he had the startled deer in the headlights look. And I went, Well, I that sounds interesting. But 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 actually he's, he's in his office if you wanna just a- ask him. And I <laughs> he'd overheard and he's leaning in his chair in a sort of classic Joel pose. Please, please. And had his hands behind his head he went 13 or 15 or no I know it was like 15 but it's great you're gonna love it and <laughs> and it was like episode 13 at the time We're like 15 I thought I was gonna make it to like 23 22 <laughs> man. that's soon oh damn you oh, alright fair enough uh, my wish to get off the show so I'm, uh, okay Uh and he goes no you're gonna love it and then he's and then I, I came in his sit down and he, he told me the whole plan to have a good he said where well, this this bomb is killing us and uh and we've got to get rid of it and there's just we bob and i have written this episode and I, I think it's the best episode of television i've ever written that i've ever been involved in i think you're gonna love it and uh and i can't wait for you to read it and i was like i got immediately whatever disappointment i had that i was going to be leaving the show earlier than i expected was immediately replaced with this uh, excitement about what they had up their sleeve, and it was fantastic. I mean, it I did mean, not disappoint.
0: It did not. No, definitely did not. Did you think that twenty four was going to be as big as it was when you joined? You know, when you came came in. Do you think it was going to become this global? No, you know, no, hit? we
1: had no idea. You know, in the in the beginning, when it was when the pilot was shot, Sarah was living in New York, and um, and we we got together very very soon after meeting and. And I I went back East to see her and um, and we were thinking, what are the odds on this show getting picked up before any announcements had been made? And I was just trying to think conventional wisdom at the time was that the show, in order to get syndication, people had to be able to watch it out of sequence at any given time, because that's just how they ran in syndication. And, So you can't watch this out of sequence. This show would be dependent upon people religiously watching it in order, or you wouldn't be able to follow it. And so that's not going to work. It was before binge watching. And then it Mm. created binge watching, which was part of its zeitgeist phenomena, along with the... um, canny synchronicity to world events with 9-11 course, happening yeah. while we were shooting the, the first or second episode before we before we aired the pilot they had to recut the pilot because events were too close the plane yeah. going down and so there, it was a synchronicity of 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 some very unfortunate circumstances and some sort of the technology of cellular phones and people using them I had just done a film with a British filmmaker, Mike Figgis. Um, the, f- the fourth of, of, uh, I did four films with British filmmaker Alex Cox and four with Mike Figgis. Um, and the one that I did last with Mike was time code 2000 and right before 24 and, the uh, the British filmmaker who was the show uh, sort of executive producer director of every other episode that set the tone and style that shot the pilot was Stephen Hopkins, right. uh, very talented British director. Um, and he sort of borrowed, uh, having seen time code that split screen image of uh, in between going into commercial break, the tying in the different storylines by showing the different screen images and oftentimes it'd be somebody on a, on a phone and sort of zeroing in. And there was just something about the look of it, which is a really brilliant use of that device, both devices, the phone and the device of the split screen. And it just registered, particularly in the UK and in Japan, you you're very smart, you know, both you and the Japanese, <laughs> very smart people. Um, and uh, we got sent, it was a lot of fun for us because we got sent pretty, you know, soon up because I could economize, it was Fox, um, Foxy had to cut cut costs and we, we were one hotel room, we were each other's extra other in travel and so we were a, a, an economy package for them to to promote the show
0: yeah
1: and um and had a lot of fun doing that and we saw pretty early on with those initial promotional things just like wow this show is there's a feeding frenzy for what because we i don't know if you remember you're you're old enough to remember when it came out yeah part of enthusiasm is predicated on that having to wait because it aired sooner in the States than it did over there. Yeah. And so definitely. they was like, ah, what's coming on? What's happening next? And, and they're in, uh, similar in other parts of the world. It was, it was exciting. I feel like you were pioneering sort of a new, a new style of, of, uh, of filmmaking and television. And, and part of it was this incredibly talented camera crew and way of, of, uh, shooting the show with uh, long angle lenses and a lot of handheld stuff and just very, very sharp camera crew that could almost anticipate. They, they really knew your lines as well as you did. And even, and we got to do a lot of recrafting of script on the day to make it even better. And they were a part of that. And so there's a very collaborative collective of mind meld. And there, there was something uncanny a guy in particular, this big guy that, did the handheld work that was so in the center of the psyche of the of the dialogue that he he could anticipate the moment that was about to happen that was the most dynamic and and move to it right before it happened so you'd see it happening and there was a, there was just a lot of uh, you know having been involved with a lot of really great um, independent filmmakers and big big budget you know iconic classic filmmakers I was always drawn to great directors more than you know a, a splashy career I don't I think just trying to learn as much as I could along the way um and you just get really lucky you know I, I just saw 1917 the other day with Roger Deakins who had one of his early movies was uh, Sid and Nancy which was one of my early movies and and uh you just see brilliance when you're in the company of it and that synergy that brian eno calls it seniors mm. when there's a collective of people together in one situation and, and young gary oldman at the time and and roger deakins and alex and and uh the different people that were that came together that sort of you could just feel it happening there and I, I felt that with todd haynes and julianne Moore unsafe and it's just like a mind meld that you, you feel and and they're cinematographer and, and uh, you just feel lucky to be on hand at those moments with, and and I think certainly even, you know, with Rob Reiner on a few good men and, and Ron Howard on, on Apollo 13 and and even Wolfgang Peterson, I think even though it's very much of a crowd pleaser kind of movie, Air Force One, he had Michael Bauhaus shooting it and, all the different actors that were a part of that ensemble, all, all three of those films had these ex, just exquisite ensemble casts. Yeah. Um, and another film, Nikki Caro directed a movie called, uh, North country that not as many people saw, but I would recommend it. Um, be, again, because of the ensemble cast, uh, from Charlize to Francis McDormand to Sissy Spacek and these incredible, actresses, but also Richard Jenkins and Jeremy Renner. And, and just, just the list went on and on and on all the way down. And, and, um, and when you're just surrounded by, when they, when they're smart enough to sort of get a, um, a lot of really talented people in a a room to tell a good story worth telling, Something magical happens and, and if someone's innovative in how they tell the story, then you're, then you feel like you're a whole part of a little bit of that TV movie history
0: so which uh, so obviously you're a film actor, but you're also a stage actor. Which one do you prefer? Do you prefer being on the stage um, where you can't do retakes or uh, you know it's completely live in front of an audience, or do you prefer film or TV? Or is that a really hard question to ask? It's a hard
1: question because there's such a, you know, uh, I'm I'm really gearing up to finally get off my ass and direct. Um, and I, I kind of want to take what I love about both into uh, the filmmaking process as a director. Um, I, I, I even write down to wanting to meticulously choreograph and stage certain scenes juxtaposed against other scenes that are complete oners, as we call them, when it's uh, just one take with one camera and everybody's able to overlap and improvise if need be in in subsequent takes, Um, where there's a, a... the skill set of actors that have both the stagecraft that's required to be able to reproduce behavior precisely and exactly. If you were to choreograph it and um, time it out, even say to music, a piece of music and incorporate rather complicated business um, to help the storytelling. So you aren't just stuck with talking heads, but from the preparation of a meal, for example, to the, the, the cooking it, to the carving of it, to the serving of it, to the eating of it and drinking and, and everybody and all the behavior that goes with all of those activities. And one of the things that drives both my, my wife and myself crazy is people fake eating. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, I, I understand people are afraid of talking with their mouth full and that's not attractive. <laughs> I have issues with that, obsession with attractiveness at all times, uh, betraying the reality of human existence. Um, but uh, I would I would be willing to uh, acquiesce to those that are particularly concerned, and that's why they won't ever eat on film. Um, but then I will, just as we, we learn lines, and it doesn't take us out of it, we'll learn business and decide, okay, these are the places where I could actually take a bite, have a sip. You know, whatever. Lean back. You know, use a napkin. Um, do different activities that one does in the course of a meal, that grounds you in the reality, the truth of, of that situation, and incorporate it into the storytelling cinematically.
0: Yeah.
1: So that you do it every time the same way, at this more or less the same way. You keep it fresh, and you do it differently each each time. But you're doing the same action and the same behavior. Um, with the lines each time and you rehearse it the, the night or two before and you you go back over that scene and you'll you just refresh it so that everybody knows exactly and you maybe even play a piece of music that everybody's doing it and you know where you are so you have it timed out so you know you can edit it if you've got several cameras going and you've got something going on with following somebody's feet or hands or things that are happening you can actually follow that action and it'll all cut like butter uh yeah. at the end of the day uh, with precision because everybody's doing the same action repeatedly and then uh, and then give them a break from that with the next scene by letting them have complete freedom and i think that if you have actors that are stage actors and film actors um you get to satisfy their love for both by treating one like a rehearsed choreographed play yeah and another like the dynamism, what we love about film acting is that it can be so real that you can actually improvise and that you can just talk at the volume that it requires to be heard by the person next to you yeah, and course. not enough to be heard in the back row. <laughs> and I would also um, do everything in my level best. I definitely have with these, we have a couple of properties that we're developing here in Maine for film production. And the the, the mad scientist in me is trying as much as possible to develop stories that can be told in chronological sequence. Because one of the things I love in stage is um, the, the the telling of the story in real time and letting what happened in this moment inform what happens in the next moment. And you do that in real time on, on stage and there's no adrenaline thrill quite like the truthfulness of that storytelling process. Yeah. Um, You can actually read, do a read on an audience um, instinctively, you know, if they've had a lot to eat or drink and, and, you know, they just want a a good laugh or something like, like a Saturday night crowd has a certain energy to it. And you could do Pinter and you could just do it as a comedy. You can do the exact same script verbatim the next night and they're feeling uh, maybe they've had more to eat and less to drink, and they're feeling a bit heavier and a bit sadder because they've got to go to work the following day. And certain other emotional components are going on in the atmosphere of the theater that they're all filling the seats of. And you pick it up, and you can do the same play and give them a totally different show that's more of a tragedy. yeah. Um, And there's something so thrilling about, the plasticity of language in a play, if it's well-written, to adapt to the moment and working with other actors that are that sensitive to what they're picking up from the audience and from one another, that it's, it's happening in real time. Just as my favorite film actors are the ones that every take is alive in the moment and they're really listening they're really reacting as opposed to the actors where you could set yourself on fire from one take to the next and they would give you the same performance.
0: So so today, Xander, uh, what is your proudest moment? What is your proudest achievement in, in your career? Uh, if you had to pick one thing, what what, what would it be?
1: Oh, gosh. The thing uh, that you're most
0: happiest with, uh, you know, a film, a TV show, a stage show.
1: Well, you know, I did this this thing called the booth at the end,
0: right? Yeah, have you
1: ever heard of that?
0: I've heard of it. I haven't seen it yet. I will then. Yeah. I promise.
1: <laughs> it. It. Uh, no, it's all right. It's. It's probably the thing I got awarded for the most, um, and it uh, it certainly suited my brand—a mysterious quality. I played a lot of bad guys and a lot of characters that you couldn't tell where they were coming from, maybe because I grew up the way I did. There's, there was something else, a little different, a little odd about my upbringing. Um, when people know something, um, it seems dangerous. (laughs) 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 Um, and, uh, but there was, there was a, a mystical vibe there in that thing that they exploited about my quality that was seemed to just be a perfect fit. Um, Cause you can't tell what he is and where he's from. And, and uh, I kind of love that. And the concept of that, it was Hulu's first thing that sort of put them on the map as something other than just a silly uh, web, web series for comedy um, sort of stuff. And um the, the other thing I, I just uh, yesterday or the day before uh, a, a movie that was just done for a shoestring and my wife was in the booth at the end, which I, I liked is, you know, certainly 24 is up there for me yeah. because of all the things we talked about and because of, uh, of having met her and having these two beautiful kids because of that. Um, but, uh, she was pregnant with, uh, our second at the time we were doing the Booth at the end, even though she was playing a very chaste nun at the time. <laughs> um, and <I> so. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then um, we just did a thing, a, a movie called The Maestro, uh, where it was again just done on. It's a labor of love. One of these. I grew up. I didn't realize I was growing up in the golden age of independent film, where they had six to ten million dollars to do an independent movie, which they never do anymore. It seems it's like you know a hundred to two hundred and fifty thousand, maybe five hundred thousand dollars to make an independent film that is unconventional.
0: Um, But do you find the 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 independent films can often be the best films? You know, yeah, that's why the grittier ones. The you know they look just 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 look beautiful. I mean, the Maestro, for instance. Um, you know, I've seen the trailers and I've seen some footage from it. I haven't seen the movie yet, but it looks absolutely beautiful. Uh, and the story itself looks amazing. Yeah, it's so
1: sweet. It's just a story that hasn't been told before. And, and uh, you know, I, I got to play a character that is so touching and sweet and I, I don't get to do that. And, and uh, you know, so for me, I I'd happily sacrifice the... Uh, the creature comforts and the finances to to get a, a creative opportunity like that and to send something positive out into the world at a time like this that uh, feels like it can really benefit from it. It's really about the love of art and about the beauty of art to help people in their journey in life and and it's music. The guy's a composer and he ended. It's based on a real story of a man that was exiled from Mussolini's Italy and went on to. Um, become the teacher to Andre Previn and, and, uh, and to uh, Henry Mancini and John Williams yeah. and Jerry Goldsmith. And the the list just goes on and on and it's the greatest composers of the 20th century. And, and he's just this lovely little Italian guy. And, and uh, so, yeah, that's a beautiful little story. And my wife and I just finished doing a movie here in Maine, um, that a friend came because he saw one of the properties that we're working on and said, before you do anything else to it, I have this idea. And, uh, before we fix it up. And, uh, I, I haven't seen that yet. We we just finished it not long ago, but that was a pretty beautiful, uh, experience because I, I play a film, I play a a painter and this, this filmmaker came and captured a lot of what, what, uh, we have done in that space, this late 18th century uh, old three-story house that uh, has a barn um, and about two artists that, that left the city. and uh, But in this rather morbid twist of events, wifey's dead at the beginning of the film. <clears throat> and I didn't do it. I swear I didn't do it. And... Although there will be those people that suspect me, I I suspect. Um, there's a, That's a concern of his at a certain point, because he doesn't call the police. He, he doesn't call 911. He he thinks about it, but then he can't bear to part with her. He crawls back mm-hmm. in bed with her, and mm-hmm. then tries to bring her back uh, as a work of art, in one way or another. But that also involves having to put her on ice, and other sort of... Odd things, and then he's got to be the one that's going out to get provisions, and he never does that. She always did that, and so he's immediately suspect when she's not around and he is, and and uh, he's holed up, and things aren't smelling quite the way they should. And... Yeah. Oh. oh I can but wifey comes back. Wifey doesn't just play a corpse. Okay. She comes back from the other side, and you don't know whether it's all happening in my mind ah, or whether twist. she's actually. Coming through from the other side oh. and and a friend of ours just saw it in a very rough cut form in LA and reported that it was incredibly moving and that she thinks that it'll like really have an impact on people that are that have loved ones that are going through the death experience because only artists she said could give you such a positive outlook on the transition yeah. and and not be, and that's just one of the things we were touched by when we did the. He sent us a script, and we did a massive rewrite on it. And just really had a great time mulling over the idea of what it is in our society that's so dreadfully afraid of death, and this inescapable thing. And and uh, and so it was a really fascinating thing to examine. And and my Scottish ancestors long. Uh, had a practice of communicating with the other side I don't know if,
0: uh... I'm not sure about that, I'm not Scottish but uh... well let me
1: tell you <laughs> oh boy it's one of the, the ironies of uh, of being an American I think is that we're mixed uh, we're a mixed breed of the extremely devout and puritanical on one hand and uh, the pagans that didn't ever want to let go of the practices of their ancestors well, on the other hand and they both came here for the same reason, to pursue religious freedom. Yeah. And the, were the red states and blue states, in many cases, in one body, uh, a, a confluence of, of ancestral influence. And uh, and it's a fascinating thing to look at. And, and uh, So uh, I, I got to sorry, go play with that on the show Salem a little bit too because I yes. got to be both. Yeah,
0: yeah, that was a good se- se- series, actually. Uh, say Salem, you've done quite quite a few a few other films and, and shows, but um, who do you look up to? You know, like um, a mentor uh, through your career. Who um, who was your your sort of um,
1: idol, your hero? Gosh, you know, um, different people at different stages. When I was, like, first coming into my teen years um, and getting to stay up later, uh, was the same time out in New Jersey that uh, my father, not being in the city anymore, was hankering to see all these great foreign films that were coming out at the time and was missing the first run of all of Fellini and all of Bergman and all of Truffaut and, and all those great, great the incredible explosion of creativity in the 60s. Um, and they were coming on PBS uh, late at night
0: Yeah,
1: in a series every weekend. They would show another in Kurosawa. And, uh, you know, it'd be, they'd be on late. And just when my, my mother would like, ah, I better go to bed before I get pulled in and end up staying up too late. And as I'd hear her coming upstairs a little earlier than usual, that was my cue like and i'd creep downstairs and i'd look down around the car and my father would wave me down to like come and watch with him so he'd have company but he would also give me an education cuz he was a cinephile and uh and and went through that along with a lot of like old bogart films a lot of early noir um and so studying film composition as from an art director's point of view as well as someone who loved uh, character actors and, and the actors that would be in the repertoire of, of a given director and totally go through a metamorphosis and become different. And he knew that I was from an early age on already showing an, an inclination. So there was this uh, mutual, because I did artwork from very early on. Yeah. He was talking to me as a young artist about composition of frame and talking to me as a young actor About the skill set of various drawing my attention. Now, do you know where you've seen him before? Well, do you remember when we saw that's the same guy that played? No way, and like that, that got me hooked on the idea of transformation. And so, you know, from really early on, I mean, it was the obvious one It's uh, you know, Lon Chaney and Lon Chaney Jr., um, the the early gothic horror films where he did his own makeup that became a kind of idee fixe for me as a character actor
0: yeah um
1: that model and then um filmmakers yeah i mean bergman at, at an early age just you know when you're really young and you just see the you're falling in love with poetry for the first time and and the poetry of bergman and then Tarkovsky um, was the uh, now. <laughs> once I'd, I'd grown up, uh, you know, and gone to college and studied acting, and and uh, started into the the craft of filmmaking from theater, um, there was something about Tarkovsky's films that just were just completely like on another level to me, and you know, you just, you have different actors. Like I got, I, I got lucky and got to work with Duvall and, and Pacino and some heroes that uh, reminded, just as I got, I feel lucky that I got to work with, um, with so many great directors that I admired so much. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just, the list is so long and, I have so many people that I admire. I mean, certainly among those that I've worked with, Gary Oldman is, is still a dear friend and, and just somebody who I just admire the hell out of. And I I never got to work with Daniel Day, but like what he did in, in for some reason, especially in the gangs in New York. Yeah. He, I like in just one little corny sentence, I just feel like he went further out and further in than I'd ever seen an actor go on film just as far as giving himself the freedom to go with such an expressionistic, full on theatrical performance and yet so devastatingly anchored at every single moment to an organic interior that, uh, I, 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 yeah, that, that blew me away. And I always wanted to work with him because of that. Um, didn't get to, but you know, you get these moments where just, just on such a simple level, simple movie I did with Duvall, just getting to watch him in each moment be in the moment. Um, Ed Harris, I've worked with a, a couple of times, and and he is the same way. It's this incredible, uh, fiery determination, an absolute, pure. Conviction to the truth, and uh, and then others where there's uh, pure conviction to the spontaneity and comedy of uh, life's absurdity. And, mean, and yeah,
0: it, it it must be really odd because for us as the fans, the moviegoers, and the people watching your work, your art, it must be really odd for you to. I mean, you've mentioned Duval, Gary Oldman. Uh, Harrison Ford to be around them day in day out um, as normal people um, so like for example for me chatting to you I've seen you on screen in many things and now I'm chatting to you and you're a normal person you're lovely it's really nice to chat chat, chat w- with you but what a an awesome world for you to be around these other actors um, and they're the normal people. Picking their nose, or, or yeah, or, or, yeah. Or, you, well, know you know what I mean. It's it's
1: strange to to me, some of the the best actors. I think they one of the reasons, the thing that keep people good uh, is honesty, and and on some level, yeah, there's an integrity that really shows on screen and, and presence. Um, some of the greatest actors, you know. Worked with Anthony Hopkins um, a few times. Just lovely, lovely man, and and he's very, very present. And uh, you come across these people. So there's, I think, a lot of times screen presence is a manifestation of real presence being there
0: would you say the british Being actors the uh, would you say the british actors have got a different approach to acting um because quite a few of the actors you've just mentioned there are,
1: yeah. are british well, maybe because i'm talking to you maybe because i'm i was raised on an expat british community i am a bit of an anglophile um that those are coming to mind um more readily right now um they are sort of you, you know at the at the top of their games right now, there's a, you know, I was struck by On The Walking Dead with Andrew Link, and I love to sing his praises because yeah. Yeah. it's better than bad-mouthing people, because there's a lot of people you could bad-mouth. I can imagine. I, I won't but lie you to won't. You. <laughs> I ain't going to do it, you know? No, I ain't gonna you're take... better
0: than that. You're better than that. I'm better than that. I don't
1: need to. It just <laughs> makes me look bad, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> and you don't know, you might be working with them next, so well i don't think i will that's the thing
1: the assholes i can just as well do without i don't have to do it anymore i don't want to um but sometimes they end up replacing somebody the last minute like oh i (laughs) said that that thing i said (laughs) i didn't
0: mean it well maybe you shouldn't be such an asshole (laughs) truth
1: is everything (laughs) just saying um no the uh (laughs) um that uh andrew lincoln on on the walking dead is just somebody that uh you know even though some people poke fun at, at his accent and stuff like that he uh you know i love it personally because he reminded me so much of of my friend walton goggins yeah. great american actor i don't know if you know walton but dear dear friend and uh when i first worked with with andrew he would always stay in in character and and because it's hard with an accent that's as far away from your own as that one is from his, Yeah. um, to just snap in and out of it. So you stay in it and I go, dude, it's weird. You're freaking me out. You kind of reminded me of my buddy Walton. And, uh, <laughs> but we ended up hitting it off so well and, and having such a great time working together. And he's just, he's just so lovely in how he took care of everybody.
0: Yeah. Definitely. Everybody.
1: And he, he's somebody that gave, a hundred and ten percent every day in the blistering sun doing repeat takes and just doing, you know, we did off camera as much as on and just never, there was no limit to his generosity of spirit and kindness and commitment. And if you had a trouble with the script or something, it was always laden with tact and, and, and insight that he respectfully confronted the powers that be about what wasn't working and what he hoped might help um, just exactly the right approach. And because he was at the head of the, you know, the number one on the call sheet, as they say, he set such a great tone um, and the whole shows that nobody beneath him would have the audacity to behave in that way that, you know, fame can do weird things to people's psyches as I'm sure you've seen. What 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 was it? But the it like? great actors, I think, just to complete that thought, yeah. The great actors, like you know, when I went to work with Duvall and Pacino, both, for example, they were like gods to me as a kid growing up, and 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 I, but immediately they had seen my work and other things, and they're the kind of actors that pay attention to actors, even if they're playing smaller roles, because something that they've seen registers, and they took it in and they go, Oh man, I'm so glad you're doing this. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, If you're doing a smaller part with them in, in something that they're doing, because they realize that you've done a lot of other things, you've done bigger roles and things and that you're doing this partly because you want to work with them and they, they get that and that it's a smaller role and that you still took it out of respect and they show you respect and, and there's this feeling of camaraderie and truth-telling and letting it happen in the moment. They know their mind is put at ease because they know that they're in good hands because there's not somebody that's going to try and hijack the scene and make it about something about them, but that's going to give it up to the scene and be in the moment with them in the dance. And uh, great actors are, are like that with one another, and so there is that brotherhood and camaraderie and... And oddly, the ones that act, you know, on a on a high horse and and don't uh, have that 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 are intimidating or whatever along the way are the ones that sort of have some insecurity or something that they're believing this nonsense of of uh, hype that celebrity creates for people, and that's not what acting's about.
0: No. Um. Go just quickly going back to Walking Dead. Um, what was it like joining the cast so far into the seasons um well, because it was obviously late in
1: because I had to be the, the the top dog of this world that they were entering into um and he was a guy such a big shot in his own mind and <laughs> he was running this this community that they were now all bedraggled and entering into that he likes to keep in a very pristine clean, uh, way and uh, so the 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 way it was written is that I'm I'm advising them I'm welcoming them, but directing them to go upstairs and, and uh, clean up and then uh, I'll meet you down here. And we'll talk. And I don't even want to smell them. I don't want to look at them. Let's go get you cleaned up and then we'll talk. And uh, you know that's my confronting all of them and sort of throwing a little bit of an eye at, at Rick's girl, because I knew that that was Rick's girl. And it was one of the, the things like in the first rehearsal, I, I had to come on strong because I had to take over the space. And this is the entire cast yeah. of this show. That's incredibly popular and successful. And, um, you know, so I, I couldn't let, let that in. Cause I have to, I have to be King daddy hot dog coming in, guns blasting from the minute I go, well, we've got company and, and, you know, Jesus, you're back. You know, I say, I say to him and you've got company. And, and I look at all of them. And then I, I noticed that, uh, I, I, I sort of made a point of wanting to take in Rick's girlfriend just because I knew that would be just something that would get right up in his, in his face. Um, and I sort of checked her out like, well, isn't she lovely? And um, and just with a a look, it's just because he's. It's also establishing the character right off the bat as being somebody a little lascivious, and um, and then I usher them to to go and get cleaned up because I'm smelling them and seeing them messing up my room, and let's get you cleaned up. And and he just asserts his alpha. We're good. And. I just opted in the very first rehearsal to get right up in this grill and go, I said, Jesus will show you where to go get cleaned up and then we'll meet back down here. Right? And now with nine out of ten leading dudes that are the big bad guy, big badass mofos on the show, you you can't even do that. You can't. Get that close, you can't pull that much um, alpha heft opposite them. You, they'll go immediately over there. And I just immediately cut it out but, because, and the scene ends shortly after that. And, and I went back into the, the library where I enter from, with shutting the two big doors behind me, like knowing we we're going to go back and do it again. We're just mapping out the blocking and getting a feel of the scene. And I was sure the director was going to come in and say, yeah, I I don't know how much you've watched of the show, but you can't get that close to Rick. He'll kill you. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. You know, one thing or another, it's like, because a lot of times you've got to try your first instinct and then they come in and and clip your wings and they tell you this and that and the other thing and, and how you can't do this or that or the other thing. And I, so I just, I go balls out on the rehearsal and, and I go as far as I can so that uh, when they clip me back, cut me back, I still have somewhere um, instead of being clipped back constantly from a small starting point. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, no, but, yeah. <laughs> but so instead of having the director come in and, and do any clipping, the door swings open and, and uh, Andy comes in and literally picks me up off the ground and spins me around and goes, I'm so glad you're doing this. <laughs> and. <laughs> and- and it was just so great because it, it just it, it speaks to the his generosity of spirit, his love of of the real truth of storytelling, that you can't get somewhere if you don't start in one place. You can't get to a new place if you don't have a journey to go through because he's going to end up, he's the star of the show, he's going to end up top dog down the line anyway. Yeah. Um, but now we have someplace to go and there's some dramatic tension. And so many people are so afraid they're gonna look bad or something like that for two seconds they won't allow that conflict and that dramatic tension and that journey to take place. And so I was just overjoyed and, and everybody else was so you know immediately thrilled by the excitement of the dramatic tension and how funny it was. And, you know and I'm the only guy apparently that ever made them laugh in takes. <laughs> take both. I would I would sort of make that my thing, was to call him uh, Ricky and stuff like that, just slipping in different. Uh, so I was always getting people's names wrong.
0: And but, and and you keep up with the Walking Dead? Do you still watch it or?
1: No, I don't. I don't watch much. I'm I'm a little bit of a political junkie. I'm slightly obsessed right now. I'm seeing what the returns are as we're talking and on the Iowa caucuses. That was a big cock up debacle last night. But. Uh, um, and I'm raising the kids and trying to keep them off of watching too much crap, all of. So we watch movies and, yeah. uh, and there's a lot of movies to try and catch up and see all of before the, uh, Academy Awards, I'm more of a cinephile than a, than a binge watcher. I just feel like too much time gets consumed and I'm I'm trying to write and paint and get my own thing going. Um, and, uh, but every now and again friends are on things and I, I feel the need to catch up and we will, yeah eventually
0: um uh, just uh quickly before we wrap up because I know that we've been talking now for nearly an hour bless you um I've counted that you've died forty three times in your no. career mm-hmm. it,
1: that might uh, be a I might be heading towards a Guinness book record I think
0: yeah uh, it's only um oh do you know what I forgot the actor that you're in line with but forty three times you've died on screen, which is your favorite death <laughs>
1: Oh man! Well, and that has to go to Terminator too, doesn't it? I mean, I, I suffered the most for that one, so I think it has to be my
0: favorite. <laughs> that was definitely a good day.
1: For two weeks before shooting that, how that did was they not actually do that?
0: Was that was it just completely C- CGI, or did they actually
1: put no, something no. in there? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I had to have the the blade far enough down my throat to look like when they pulled it out uh, of my mouth and the carton that it was coming out from the back of my head. Right. And so they had a blade fit to the back of my head that was retractable. It went sideways. Um, so looked like it was going this way. And, but they had puppeteers holding, um, Jeanette who played Janelle, uh, Jeanette Goldstein who played my wife, um, in her arm and freckles morphing into titanium or whatever the blade was. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and uh, you know at different stages, the straight blade into the into the and then down. and so those are three different arms they made and they, they uh, CGI the points in between. Um, but they had to like have me, and they forgot, for example that that I'd be leaning over counters to get pinned against the cupboard. And so I had to do a back bend while swords wallowing. Right. While they matched the glint on the blade in the back to the glint on the blade going down my throat. And uh, at one point they were trying out tubes of milk and tubes of blood that would split at the back and pour out so they wouldn't turn pink on either side of my mouth. Just all kinds of torture, physical torture. Like
0: but what an epic thing. scene. What a good death. Yeah. Um, with conventions, um, I know that you've been to a few. Are you planning on coming over to the UK at all for any conventions in the near future
1: yeah i've just gotten my my passport was stolen and uh i've just because i was born in brooklyn as you know yeah um it took it's i think one in 11 people in, in the country was born in brooklyn when i was born right. and and uh and so it was a very long waiting list and now i'm expediting the uh securing my passport so I can make it back overseas Excellent. and I, I will I will. I would love to be invited to one and attend one because it really is you know my home
0: Do you enjoy my it, homeland? do you enjoy doing conventions
1: um, well I, I didn't I gotta say the walking dead the walker stalkers took on a weird vibe I don't know if you've read any yeah, of the stuff yeah I've read all of them that. That, that, that was a that was sort of like, I didn't like their vibe um and and for me, that was a hard pill to swallow because the people that got my character didn't, you know, the more sophisticated viewers, shall we say, that got my sense of humor aren't the ones that go out to those conventions. And the ones that go to those conventions, uh, the Walker stalkers, as they were called, uh, not to overly, because I met a, just a, so many wonderful people and lovely, sweet, sweet people. And there are a lot of people that, you know, also all kinds of challenged and handicapped people that I just, you know, fell in love with and, and uh, have maintained communication with a lot of them. And, you know, it, so it's really hard to generalize. Um, but there's a lot of them that, you know, identified very heavily with the characters, but particularly...
0: <laughs> Do you mean the uh, the obsessive ones?
1: Yeah, you know, the, yeah. the ones carried a bit far. Um, <laughs> and... Yeah. And, you know, they're all, okay. Well, nobody wanted, the, you know, the, 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 there was something that was, it was hard for me that, you know, I thought like I'm finally going to go do these things. And I, I'd always, you know, I kind of grew up, I, I was always working. I grew up in the business thinking, well, that's what you do if you don't work, right? Not, not what you do if you've got a a thriving career. Um, so I was always a little snotty about the idea of the convention, but that had changed and The Walking Dead was certainly like, again almost like a zeitgeist uh tipping point like no you you do these things yeah everybody's doing them it's like you you got to be if you're a part of the team you got to do it and i would do it to be a part of the team and then like they're all lining up for characters that you know have sort of that have never done anything before and and they don't care about any of the things that i've done and and I feel like a whore on the street corner, like an old whore.
0: Taking money. They're in. all
1: walking by, just go, going to the young whores down, down the way. And I, ah. And, I, and it, under the words of J.T. Walsh, who I did like six movies with, is an extraordinary actor. I remember him saying to me one day, uh, and I think this is where the, the, that that uh, rather crude language comes from Xander, uh, you ever worry that one day you're just going to. Just get sick of you and just go to some new horror down the street. And like this is literally the sixth movie we had done in a row that he said. No, no, I don't. I don't. That's why I wear a different little outfit and I change my accent and I talk different. I look different for him each time out, so I'm new for him each time. Um, and it just. But I was like, I didn't even take it in seriously. But when I went to that convention, I got seriously depressed. I went into a depression. Of like, oh my God, I've got to do this. And nobody's in my, nobody's lining up. Nobody wants the douchebag's autograph. Because all I was to them was the douchebag. They didn't get the humor. Occasionally somebody would lumber over and go, why are you so mean to Maggie? <laughs> uh, oh, I didn't write it. I didn't. It's, it's not my fault. Not, it, somebody had to play this part.
0: Oh bless you! Well, I'm sure you won't uh, get that in the UK. We're quite no. Sure. We'll see. That's we're, what I'm
1: leading to. Is we're a lot more I polite do here. I did one in, in the UK, and I had a freaking blast. And I've I've made friends uh, that I have stayed in touch with. yes yeah. uh, And you know, and I would love to see them again. I'd love to see all of my friends in in London and and in outreaches. Uh, I, I would jump at the chance to come over there. Well, we can. And make... There's, I was supposed to do one in Germany, and that my passport thing I didn't get in time, yeah. so I want to get over there and, and see them. Well,
0: I'm sure we there's can some... make the magic happen. And uh, if you can persuade your lovely wife to come over as well,
1: yeah, oh, we'd love to, we'd love to bring the kids. Um, yeah, never seen their native homeland. Yeah, bring so, them over,
0: yeah. bring them over, and we can have you know, Sarah you know... and I did one
1: right after 24, yeah, we did one together en route to uh to morocco for a friend's crazy birthday party that we just had so much fun right before we had kids and uh we we really had fun we did it together and, and we met a lot of people uh you know sort of in the wake of 24 very recent wake and uh had a blast so we'd love to do that together and you know because she did twilight
0: yeah of course Rene,
1: a phenomena yeah. akin to the walking dead um you know we could kind of do a combo along with other things that, uh, and, and
0: and of course nina, nina myers um come I, on I, I i can get you to sign my project because i've got a book that i'm collecting all my 24 autographs in um i've even got a keitha Sutherland screen worn shirt and jeans from season five which which my wife thinks it's ridiculous but You've got to have your passions, haven't you?
1: Oh, you do have to have your passions and there's no shame in it, mate. No. no. I'll, I'll bring I'll bring some weird twisted little memorabilia for you that yes. uh, that'll that'll be even weirder than that so you can have a collection of weird. The
0: more things I can have on my wall, the more more my wife gets annoyed. It's great stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's just great. <laughs> no Xander
0: it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you so much for coming on to the podcast Um, so the film that you're doing that you've just done with your wife what's the film called that hasn't got
1: a title yet (gasps) they're they're, they're bandying about titles Um, the director writer director fixed on a couple that are just a little too eclectic and arcane and rarefied and it will be targeted for a European audience. Um, it's very much an art film. Um, but we don't want it to fly over the heads of the domestic audience, so we haven't found the title yet. But, we'll but I
0: presume you'll be updating it on your Twitter. On your I beg your pardon? I, I, I presume you'll be uh, updating I, the name really on Twitter do. and let everyone I know, will. and I'll be the first one to watch it, I'm sure, in Absolutely. the UK. Absolutely. Xander, thank you so much. You have a wonderful night. uh, And thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Yeah, I had a blast. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Lovely to meet you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to Be More Super, the podcast. It
1: was have a crazy fun experience. I love the show, guys. You're awesome.
0: Listen, my whole family loves it, man. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button and share it with your super friends. In my world, it means hope.